Well, my name is Billy Gifford. I am, hi, I'm the executive pastor here, uh, and I'm really excited to be here. We are uh, probably not halfway through because it's a long series, but we're, we're journeying through uh, the Sermon on the Mount in this series called Seek First. And we're actually not going completely in order chronologically. I don't know if you've noticed. We're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but uh, in general, we're, we're going right through it. And um, today we're going to be diving into... Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, and then a few verses later, uh, talking about oaths and loving your enemies. Oaths and loving your enemies. I don't know if they're related, but we're talking about it. So it might be two for one, two sermons in one. So we'll be talking about loving your enemies uh, in bulk a little bit later, and then I'm, I'm, but first I'm going to talk about just oaths. And uh, it's, it's going to be a little difficult for me to talk about loving enemies because everyone loves me, and so I don't know what... <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work out. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, that's not true. I, I grew up with three sisters, uh, and so I, I made some enemies as a kid. So um, they might be live streaming, though, so I can't say too much. Uh, three on one, you know? Um, I love a good challenge. Uh, so I've, I've learned. I've had to ma- I had to make enemies first before I had to learn to love them. So, um, Well, before we really get into that, I, I want to mention something in Matthew 5 that you've probably seen as we've read, read through it. Um, but it, it's this idea of heard and said versus uh, it is written that Jesus talks about. So he, 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 he says in Matthew chapter 5, and you hear it when he talks about murder and adultery and all these things. He says, you have heard that it was said. Okay, those are the two key words, heard and said. And what I want to point out is that Jesus would often say, you have, have you not read what was written? And so I'm pointing out something that he was referring not specifically to the Old Testament, but to the verbal interpretation of the Old Testament when he said, have you heard it said? Because every time he talked about the scriptures, he spoke with authority and said, have you not read what was written? And I just bring that distinction before we get into it because I think it's important for us to see that he's not correcting the law, right? He's just bringing the right interpretation forth from the law. The law was perfect. He's bringing the intent forth. So I just, I just throw that out there before we get into it, so... All right, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. And we're going to read it and then really get into it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. I should have bookmarked it. There we go. All right, it says this. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told. You have heard that it was said, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no, no, no oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here in this small passage? Now, remember, the context of the Sermon on the Mount and this part specifically is referring to personal relationships. So we need to interpret this section in that light. And he's referring to the type of oath that is used to to make a man tell the truth. It's the phrase, I swear to God. That's what he's addressing right here. And the origin origin of this comes from uh, making an oath before God and and thereby saying, if I break this oath, it is a sin before God with the the punishment of, of hell. And so it was a very serious thing in these days. And so Jesus, he's not saying, I, I, I've, I've heard this before, but is he saying that if we go to the court, if we find ourselves in the court of law 
And we, we cannot put our hand on the Bible and say, you know, I, I will tell the whole truth, not the truth, so help me God, I swear. He's not saying that because Jesus himself was actually put on oath by the high priest and he responded to that in Matthew 26. And then Paul did the same thing a little bit later. But he's referring to our day-to-day -day interactions with other people. And so there are a couple things going on here. First, the Jewish people knew that it was against the Ten Commandments to use God's name in vain, right? So the, one of the big ten. In an attempt to avoid that sin, they would just, since this swearing became part of their language in the everyday conversation, they would just change the name of God to something else. That's why he says, uh, so they swore by heaven or by earth or even by the hair on their heads. So they were trying to avoid breaking the Ten Commandments, trying to find a loophole. And the second thing going on was the, the entire reason that they used oaths or swearing is because it's an admission that it's, it's really not always easy for us to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so one way of, of pulling forth the truth out of someone was to bring the fear of God into their hearts by making them swear to God and overcome any other motives that they might have for telling a lie. So making the fear of God the main motive. And so this is the general situation he's speaking to in these just few, few short verses. And so what he's really saying is that whatever oath you use, God is there. That if you swear by your hair, well, he knows the number of hairs on your head. If you swear by earth, that's his footstool. If you swear by heaven, you're swe swearing by God's dwelling place. In other words, you cannot speak without God being involved in what you say. He's in everything. And this is the real message he's trying to get across to you. This is not about being in court. This is about all your speech should be in the presence of God. And so be a man of woman of integrity. And so when you say yes, it should be the kind of yes that knows that God is listening. And if you say no, it should be the kind of no that knows that for every idle word that slips off your tongue, you'll give an account for in the day of judgment. We must always speak the truth because we're always speaking in the presence of God. You may just think you're speaking to your spouse or your friend or your boss or whoever, but God is present. And so what he's really saying is that there should be no reason for you to need to swear when speaking to make people believe you're telling the truth because as Christians, we're always going to be telling the truth, always. You should never lie. And if you say, yes, I will do this, or yes, I did do this, it means, it, yes, you actually did do this, or yes, you will do that. And if you say, no, I didn't do that, it means, no, you didn't do it in reality. I mean, in our, in our language, it sounds like the words honestly or promise. Like, I promise I didn't do that. It's like, if we emphasize that word, it's like, now you believe me. But if I just say, no, I didn't do that, you're like, I don't believe you. And then you're like, no, honestly, no, honestly, I, I, I really didn't do that. It's like, okay, that, that is a generally the situation he's speaking into. And he's saying, we don't need to be that kind of people. Why? Because everything we say is going to be honest. Every word that comes off our tongue is telling the truth. And so this kind of speaks into the question of, well, why do we lie? And again, I'm, I'm going to be brief because I want to move on a lot. But the issue when it comes to telling the truth or lying is this. Who do we trust to get us out of a tight spot? That's basically what it comes down to, in my opinion. So suppose you're in a situation in the office or at school and you find yourself in a tight spot. What do you do? You can either tell a lie and, and, and get out of it, get out of the situation, or you can tell the truth and maybe perhaps suffer some consequences. And what the devil will do is he'll come to you and he'll say, a lie is powerful and almighty and it can deliver you from this situation. 
And the Holy Spirit will come to you and say, God is almighty and, and powerful. And he can deliver you if you trust him and if you honor him by speaking the truth. Amen. And so what do you do? <laughs> do you believe that the lie is almighty? Or do you believe that God is almighty? It really does come down to what do I trust to deliver me from this moment? And it goes beyond deliverance too. It's about providence as well. I mean, people all over the world lie and cheat on their tax returns or, or students cheat in school. I hope no one here does that. But that's a lie in order for what? To get a benefit. Uh, it was, it's, it's very common in society. People make plans for that already. And so a, a funny example, a little while ago, my wife and I, Cheryl, uh, she, we, were, we bought a tax and play, or no, we bought like a rock and play from Target as a gift for someone. And they sent us two on accident. Long story short, they sent us two. And so we didn't pay for the second one. So we went back to Target to give it back. And it took literally about seven minutes for us to return this thing because the people at the desk were so confused what we were doing. They didn't understand. And were, the lady kept saying, oh, sir, I'm sorry, unless you can have a proof of purchase, we can't accept it. And I'm like, I didn't purchase it. I'm not proving I I'm telling you I didn't purchase it. I'm just giving it back. And literally we went back and forth and it took her like five minutes to be like, wait, oh, you're just giving it back. We accidentally sent you one. And I was like, yes, just take it. I gotta go, you know? Um, <laughs> But she was so used to people attempting to lie in order to get a freebie. Yeah. People lie to get providence. Uh, and it, it was really funny, actually. The guy, there was another manager watching, and he literally afterwards came over and shook my hand as if I had done something like I saved his life. It was just like, he literally shook my hand and was like, thank you for doing that. I've never seen that. And I was like, you're welcome. <laughs> but people really are used to lying. They expect lying because it does promise you to deliver you or to provide for you, which in itself is a lie. God is almighty, not a lie. And so what Jesus is really just saying is that his disciples don't tell lies, whether that's a future or a past. No, I didn't do that, or yes, I will do that. Both, it's all the same. We are to be men and women of integrity, and if we say something, it is because it's real. Yes is yes, and no is no. Okay, let's go on to the loving your enemies. This is where we're gonna get into the meat of it. So let's go to verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No big deal, right? Just be perfect. It's not that hard, guys. I feel like it's just like, hey, be perfect. Let's close the Bible. Go, go home. Be perfect. I actually heard of a preacher who shared a message on loving your enemies and it was incredibly convicting. Small little church, but very convicting. And at the end of the service, he asked his congregation, now how many of you are gonna go out and love your enemies? And every hand in the building went up, except for one. It was a sweet little old lady. And so he asked her, ma'am, are you not willing to love your enemies? And she said, well, I don't, I don't have any. Um, and he replied, wow, that is unusual. How, how old are you? And she said, I'm 93 years old. 
And he said to the whole congregation, he said, what a blessing and a lesson to us all that someone can live 93 years old and not have an enemy in the world. And he asked her, would you come on up and just share, just share just your experience of what it, what it's, how you've been able to do that? And so she gets out of her seat and just toddles up to the front and turns to the congregation, gets on the microphone and says, I outlived the old snakes. <laughs> that is one way to do it. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching, but that is technically part of it. But what does it mean to love your enemies? Okay, I'm going to break this down into like into three parts. Uh, really understanding just the text, the context, the practice of so the picture of it, the practice of it, what it looks like, and then the power of it, how to actually do it. How do we actually love our enemies here? So what does it mean to love your enemies? Enemies. 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 It means this. Love your enemies. That's it. It's not complicated, actually. I say that kind of jokingly, but seriously, it's, it's, the, the text really interprets itself here. If it's difficult to understand, it's, it's really because we don't want to understand it. But it's not, it's, it really just means love those who hate you, who harm you, who are hostile to you. It's not more complicated than that. So remember, Jesus is quoting from essentially secondhand Bible study when he, when he, when he says, you have heard it was said. So he's referring to the misinterpretation of what Leviticus 19.18 says, which says this, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Pharisees and the scribes, what they did was they took that passage, read it, didn't change it properly, but then improperly interpreted it and improperly taught it. And so they thought if Moses said, well, love your neighbor, then that means we're to love a specific group, which means we're supposed to have a different attitude towards a different group. And the opposite of love is hate. So that means we're supposed to hate a different group in the and the opposite of neighbors, enemies. So following our own logic, then the law is actually teaching us to hate our enemies. The Jews being our, our neighbors and the Gentiles being our enemies. And so this law teaches us to hate. Hate your enemy was never written in the Old Testament scriptures, by the way. That's not there. So Jesus is correcting them and saying, nope, that's wrong. Love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who attack you and cause you pain. And you do that, then you're being like a son or a daughter of your father in heaven. And he gives rain and sun to all. And if, and if he only gave it to the righteous, then we'd all probably die of famine, honestly. Because I mean, who would, who would qualify for rain? So I'm gonna discuss what it is, uh, and what it, but first I'm gonna start with what it is not. What is this loving your enemies? But first, what it is not. It is not a sentimental love. Jesus is not saying, you need to somehow conjure up this emotional, sentimental feeling for the guy that hates you and to where you're just like, I want to hang out with them. I want to like buy him a cookie. I want to just spend time with them, like buddy, buddy. He's not saying that. He's not being unrealistic. And if that were the case, you probably wouldn't even know who your enemy is anyway, because you'd be so caught up in just fairy tale land, really. <laughs> but we know when someone hates us. We know when we have an enemy. It's, it's quite obvious. It's like, that guy hates me. Wow. It's also not a passive love. It's not a passive love. Jesus isn't saying that loving your enemy just means don't hate them, where you're kind of neutral, meaning you know you have an enemy, you know they don't like you, you, you kind of don't like them, but you haven't gone out of your way to harm them, right? 
And so you think, well, I love my enemy. Of course I do. I haven't elbowed him in the face, have I? No, I love him. That's not what he's saying. So what is it then? It is firstly purposeful. It is purposeful love. Again, it's not that God just avoids like sending lightning bolts you know, on us because we're wicked. Where like the wicked are like complaining to God and saying, I don't have enough rain for, for the crops. And he's just responds like, you, you're just lucky I haven't set you on fire yet, son. It's, it's not what he's saying. It's not that he just avoids that. <laughs> for us, it's not, that we can, it's not that we can just say, well, I haven't done any harm intentionally in return. That is a great start, but it's more than that. We have to actively show love in word and deed. And, and I'm not saying that you need to constantly pursue those in your life that hate you or your enemies. But I am saying that when an opportunity arises for you to do good, you do it to them. Luke's gospel says it this way in Luke chapter six, verse 27. It says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Do good. It's a call to action. We actually have to be active and purposeful. Think of the Good Samaritan story. There were two of God's people, Levi and, I can't remember now, but two people walked right by the injured Jew. And it doesn't say they hated him. They just were busy or they just went on their way. They were just passive towards him. I'm sure they, they may even bless them in his heart, but they just kept walking right by. But what did the Samaritan do? He stopped and actually did something to someone who was an enemy to him, by the way. There's a story of a, a guy, I think many of us, many of us have met, might have heard this, but uh, a guy named Louis Zamperini. He, he was uh, in this movie, Unbroken. Some of y'all have seen it, but long story short was he was a prisoner of war in World War II, an Olympic runner, and um, he was captive for like two years and brutally mistreated, like brutally. He, he ended up being like 65 pounds at one point. And the end, of, the end of the war came, he was rescued, and he kind of struggled after life, as you would, being a prisoner of war. And one day he attended a Billy Graham crusade and gave his life to the Lord. And immediately he felt a tug in his heart, the Lord speaking to him and leading him to go back to Japan and to love on his enemies, to love on those uh, who were his prison guards. And so he did that. He just went back. He gathered those who were in that exact same prison camp and shared the gospel with them and loved them. And many came to the Lord that day. Many of his very own prison guards came to the Lord. And I share that to say that you know, not everyone goes actively looking for their enemies, but sometimes the Lord leads us to do that. And again, he could have just loved them from afar, right? I have no hatred in my heart. He's just loving them from afar. But he actually decided to do something about it. And he went and loved on them. And because of that, many of them received salvation. So it's a purposeful love. And if it's purposeful, then it becomes very practical, as you kind of can see. It's a practical love. The Good Samaritan cleaned the guy's wounds, put a bandage on him, and did even more. Proverbs 25, 21 says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is, if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, I know what some of y'all might be thinking. Burning coals? All right, I'd love to see that guy burn. Uh, <laughs> It, that's not the spirit of it. it, it you know, I actually was talking to Chris Service about this. He was like, oh, you like love, love your enemy to death. Like, love them to death. God. But the spirit of it means if you love them, if you do good to them, it could very well lead them to repentance. It could lead them to repentance. 
It's not, oh, my enemy's hungry. Let's give him a knuckle sandwich. He's hungry. That's not it. <laughs> but it is practically seen and it is practically felt. So the problem is we tend to think that we are good people because we do good generally to those who are good to us, to our friends, to our family, and in general, even to strangers. We do good. And I've heard it shared this way. To return evil for evil is animal. To return evil for good is demonic. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. When we think of being worldly, I mean, when I say the term worldly, there are things that probably come to your mind. We think of like the big things like murderers, idolaters, lovers of money, etc. But Jesus is saying here, if you just love your friends and your family, you're worldly. Do not even the tax collectors do that? Don't the Gentiles do that? How, is that? how does that make you any different than them? But you know what the world doesn't do? The world does not love their enemies. They do not bless those who curse them. They do not pray for those who persecute them. And in fact, that is what makes a disciple of Jesus salt and light. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about being salt and light in this world. So how are we, we to be any different from the world if we simply do good to, to those who do good to us? Or even if we just do good to strangers? Let's be honest, there's a plenty of humanitarian aid around the world. There's a lot of it. And so we say, well, I'm good to my friends. I'm good to my family. I'm good to the stranger. What, what more could you want from me? And Jesus is saying, well, a Christian, <clears throat> someone who's part of my family, is even good to those who hate him and harm him. And that's what makes us a light in the world. And others will see that light. When we love our enemies, that, that is a strange concept for this world. We will be a light when we do that. An example of this is when Stephen in the book of Acts was stoned to death in Acts chapter seven for preaching the gospel. And he became like Jesus in those last moments, a son of his father in heaven, when he prayed for those who were persecuting him. And he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you know what the Holy Spirit was very uh, careful to point out in this passage? It says that there was a young man by the name of Saul who watched this whole thing play out. He was holding their coats while people were stoning him. And I believe that when he saw Stephen forgive his murderers as they were literally killing him, when he saw Stephen love his enemies, that that put a crack in that heart of stone of Saul's to allow the Holy Spirit to work a conviction that would change his life. And I say that because Paul would later recount his conversion in Acts chapter 26. And he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Lord, Lord, why, or sorry, not Lord, Lord. That's, that's later saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what is a goat? What's Jesus saying? A goat is just a stick uh, with a, an iron point on it that farmers use when plowing with oxen, simply to poke the, the oxen in the right direction. So if they started to steer off track, they'd get a prod from this goad and it would set them straight. And I believe it was the Holy Spirit working within Saul's conscience, prodding him, and I believe it was the light that he saw from Stephen that made way for that, that opened his heart for the, the nudging and the prodding and the pricking of the Holy Spirit. So love your enemies. It's very practical. It is seen and it is felt. And if you think you love your enemies, but it's not seen and felt, you're, you're not loving your enemies according to what Jesus is saying. <laughs> so it is, it is a purposeful love. It is a practical love. And lastly, it is, a, it is perfect mercy. 
It's perfect mercy. When Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's not saying the absolute divine, glorious, heavenly, perfect that God is because he's God. <laughs> he's saying, and it, you can see it here in Luke's gospel. I'll read it in Luke's gospel, chapter six, verse 35 and 36. He says this, love your enemies and do good. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So in Matthew, he says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And in Luke, he says, be merciful as your father is merciful. So that actually helps us understand what he says when he says, be perfect. He's saying, you actually can be perfect in showing mercy. You can show mercy. So in the same way that your father in heaven has shown mercy to you, the same way he shows mercy to us, we can show mercy to others. Again, we, we, we can't be absolutely divine perfection like God, but we can be perfect in showing mercy because that's a choice we can just make. When someone harms us, we can choose, I'm gonna show mercy. Or we can put them in a, a, a mental prison, an emotional prison, or be cold to them. But that is of hatred. That is not of love. It may not be hatred fully grown, but it is hatred at, at, at the root. And so it is, it is God's nature to show love and mercy he causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. And so in that sense, he's really showing mercy to everyone. I mean, have you thought about it? It's like there are so many wicked people on this planet. We think about history and think about now. And some of them are very well off. They're wealthy. The sun shines down on them. The rain falls on them. They get good crop. They, they, they seem to be doing great. And in that sense, he, he, he's just being fair to all. He's showing mercy to all. None of them deserve it, but he's merciful. The sun actually is actually a good example for us if we think about it. So the sun shines down on us. And if I go outside like later today, and if I smile at the sun, guess what? It's gonna shine down on me. But if I go out there and like yell at the sun in anger and, and frown at it, it's still gonna shine down on me because it's, it's made of light. It, that's part of the nature of the sun. That's what it does. Or think of fire. Fire burns because it's fire, but it's hot. And so it doesn't just burn some and not others. And so if a righteous person or a wicked person comes into contact with fire, they're going to get burned, right? And in the very same way for the Christian, it should not matter whether or not an enemy comes into contact with you or a friend comes into contact with you. The result should be the same, that they will get loved and treated with respect and dignity. It's our nature. It should be our nature. Fire burns because it's hot. The sun shines because it's bright. There's probably some science behind it too. <laughs> but the Christian loves in word and in deed because we're supposed to be sons, like it says in Matthew 5, of our Father in heaven who does the same thing. So whether people curse us, whether they bless us or praise us, our attitude towards them remains the same, which is one of love. It's one of love. And if others decide to serve Satan by being evil towards you, why should you also then serve Satan by being evil back? It's like, that guy was bad. I'm gonna also join Satan's team and be bad back. Makes no sense. We are called to be the children of God and the children and God is merciful to all. He shows mercy to us all. And so being perfect and showing mercy is something that we can do because God has first shown us mercy. And that is the key to unlocking actually how to do this. We can read this passage and, and frankly, it's not super difficult to understand and, and right now, everything I've shared up to this point may actually not have been like revolutionized your way of thinking about it. 
Because really, it, it, it is, we know what we're supposed to do. The problem we face is just doing it. It's like, I know I'm not supposed to get angry, but I'm saying that through gritted teeth. Like, you're angry. So we know we're supposed to love our enemies. That's like one of the, the hallmarks of Christianity. That's not our problem. Our problem is just actually physically accomplishing it. That is a little more difficult if you've ever tried that. So how do we do it? Do we grit our teeth and say, here's some water? What do we do? Uh, there's a, there was a young lady, just one more story. There's a young lady by na the name of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she was imprisoned also during World War II after being caught. I know I'm sharing all these war examples. I didn't realize that until now. But, um, caught, she was caught sheltering Jews in her home. And so her and her family were shipped off to a concentration camp. And she suffered a lot there. Her father died along the way. Her only sister died while at the camp. Um, and she would later be released and then go and travel the world essentially as an evangelist, sharing the love of God. And at one meeting, well after the war, a German soldier approached her. She's preaching on the love of God and forgiveness and love and all that stuff. And a German soldier approached her and put, her, put his hand out and said, what a wonderful message. And immediately she recognized him as one of the exact guards that stood outside her prison camp. And she froze. She couldn't lift her hand. And, and she, accounts, uh, she recounts this in her book and she says this, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my so sh shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the very love itself. The power to love her enemy didn't come from her, but from him. And the power to love our enemies is the same. It doesn't come from us. It comes from him. And st hearing stories of people loving their enemies, especially like this, in extreme circumstances, is, is moving. And, and it touches something deep inside of us. But the reality is that only gives us enough fuel to go and do likewise so much. It will eventually run out. We need something more than just a story of, of love. And if we really want the power to be able to love our enemies like this, we need to realize that that is exactly how God loved us. God loved us the exact way. See, too often the message coming from Christianity these days is a promise of of, of blessing or just a, a, a message of how loved you already are and how, how precious you are and how amazing you are and irresistible you are to God, that even God himself can't help but love you because you're so awesome and so beautiful. <laughs> Has any, I mean, I've, I've heard so many messages like that, which there's a hint of truth to it, right? It's true, God loves us and you know, he's full of love for us. But it does seem that preachers attempt to flatter people into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus never did that. 
He never did that. I've, I've searched. I'm like, where did he, he repent, you being evil? Okay, where is it? <laughs> and I get it though, but who, who, who wants to tell someone that they're like a sinner, not fit for the kingdom of heaven, just straight up? That can be quite offensive, especially in this day and age. Everyone gets offended so easily. It's like, hey, you're a sinner. It's like you're, you're up in arms already. But we're the church. We're the carriers of the truth, and we have to speak the truth. It's going back to the oaths message. It's like we always tell the truth. We do it in love, we do it with compassion, but we have to tell the truth. And so what really needs to be said is this, that God is a righteous God. He is righteous. There's a lot of terms that I've thought through about who is God. He's, he is provider. He, he cares for us. He's our healer. He's all these things. He's even love, it says later in 1 John. But maybe the word that I would sum it up with is he is righteous and he's good. The Bible goes through great lengths to communicate to us that above all, he's righteous. And his righteousness demands righteousness from us. And if it didn't, then he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be fully righteous. But he is just and he is righteous. Therefore, he demands perfect righteousness from us. Therefore, if we are to escape the judgment to come, we have to somehow have the perfect righteousness of God within us. And that is our problem, right? We have broken God's laws. We have missed the mark. We've fallen short. We are wicked and we're evil. I mean, later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, Jesus shares his doctrine of mankind. And he says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. That's how he viewed us. I mean, imagine hearing that from Jesus. You're like, hey, how's it going? Hey, you're evil, but you still know how to do a few good things. It's like, whoa, that's a shocker. But that is the truth. We have loved darkness rather than light. As John 3, 19 says, we've loved darkness rather than light. And we may think, well, I'm not that bad. This is the classic, right? I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not a thief. But I wanna ask you, have you really thought about that? Think about that. The whole, one of the whole messages in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is trying to get to and communicate to us is that it's not just about the externals. He points out it's about the heart. You may not have killed someone, but have you thought about it? You may not have committed adultery, but have you imagined it? You're guilty. You can kill in thought and in word. God hates all forms of murder, thought, word, and in deed. Wishing someone dead is murder. You, you don't have to stick a knife in someone's back to commit murder. You can wish them dead. You, you can even spit on them. I mean, it's a rather ineffective weapon, but that's what you're doing. Seriously. You're like, I, you're, you're, there's murder in the heart and it's all the same. And this standard applies across the board, not just anger with lust and everything else. And so in that light, it's like we step back, we say, wait, 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 wait. Maybe I'm not so righteous. Maybe I actually have broken maybe one or two of God's laws. We have fallen quite short. We have missed the mark for everlasting life. And we go on sinning. We either think it's not a big deal. We think uh, God's not gonna judge us. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. And the truth is we have earned those wages. We've earned overtime, in fact. We have earned those wages. 
In Philippians 3, Paul says, those who set their minds on earthly things are enemies of the cross of Christ. And in James 4, it says, anyone who wants friendship with the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're all guilty of that in one way or another. And I'm trying to point out and hope that we all see that without Christ, we're actually an enemy of God. We are his enemy. We have hated him. We have loved darkness and hated the light. But here's the good news. The good news that, is that though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son on the cross, Romans 5. As it says in Colossians 1, although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude towards God, yet he reconciled you. Who will set me free from this body of death? Paul says in, in, in Romans 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. See, our portion was a body of death. We earned it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy, perfect mercy with the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, praise God for that. We were his enemies. We were hostile. We hated the light. We have broken every command there is. And, and James, it says, if you break one, you break them all. It's one link in the chain. It's not gonna hold. And yet while we were enemies, he reconciled us. He took the steps. It's not that we, he's over here like turning his back like this, like waiting for us to crawl to him begging. He initiated, he did good. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to make a way for us to become his friends. So I have to ask, is the Holy Spirit goading you? Is he prodding you? <clears throat> and I know we're in a big room and, and, and many of us have probably heard this message, but as I was preparing for this, it was like, we need to hear this again. This is the gospel. This is what helps us to love others. When we realize that we were such enemies of God, it's not that we were just indifferent. That's that we're flattering ourselves to think, well, I mean, you know, I haven't like really sought after him. I haven't really loved him, but you know, I'm just kind of, I'll get there. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> You're an enemy of God, but he loved you. He loved you. So is he prodding you? We'll wrap it up here pretty quick. We'll go ahead and get the band to come on up. Wrap it up. It is hard to kick against the goads, Jesus said. And again, I just want to point out that that kicking against the goad is that, that, that voice in your conscience saying, wow, I need to get right. I need to turn. I need to make it right. And if we respond to his mercy by repenting of our sins, meaning I'm done with that. I know it's wrong. I knew it was wrong this whole time. I, was, I heard that voice and I just kept ignoring it. And I kept walking away from him and that voice got quieter and quieter until I accepted it and said, no, this is not a sin, it's fine. If we repent from that and say, I'm done with that idea. And if we put faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we can have everlasting life. We can have eternal life. And some will say, well, I can't believe that because I can't believe because I'm too sinful, I'm too dirty. And to that, I would say, I would liken that to a wealthy man writing a check to two people. 
One's a dirty old beggar and the other one's like a wealthy businessman. And maybe the dirty beggar's like, I'm too filthy to receive that check. And maybe the, the wealthy businessman, the other guy's like, thank you, I'll take it. I'll invest it and, and move on with life. The point being, one was able to put aside their self to receive the gift, the offer. And I, I wanna say Christ is offering you eternal life. It has nothing to do with how dirty or clean you think you are. It's not about that. And some will say, I won't believe, meaning I actually, I'm okay. I'll make it there on my own, thank you very much. I'm not that bad. And to that, I would say, I would liken that to, to a, a patient going to see a doctor and the doctor saying, I'm really sorry to say this, but you have cancer. And unless we remove that tumor, you're gonna die. And then that guy responding to the doctor to saying, uh, actually, I'm just gonna change my diet and I'm gonna start running. I think I'll be okay. Thanks doc, but no thanks. We know, that, we know exactly how that's gonna pan out. And others might even say that I believe, I totally do. And I will just later. <laughs> I, know, I know that Jesus is the Lord and I know I've gotta work through some stuff, but I'll get to that later for sure. I know I need to, maybe when I start a family or maybe when the kids leave home, something like that. And to that, I would just echo what it says in James 4, where he says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know. Your life is just a vapor. It's here one day, it's gone the next. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is offering us a drink of living water. And we need to remind ourselves that when we drink of that, we are refreshed and will never thirst again. And there are people in this room who are thirsting. You're looking for something. Maybe you just got to college or maybe you're about to leave college or maybe you just got married or maybe you just, your kids left their house or whatever it is. There's still that something. You, you get to that peak, whatever that peak is for you and you find it's empty. You drink that drink and you find it's, wow, a second later you're thirsty again. And you try another drink. Maybe the drink of pleasure will help. Maybe the drink of money will help. Maybe the drink of whatever you fill your cup with. It's not gonna satisfy you. You will thirst again, but if you drink of the living water with Jesus, you will never thirst again. He's offering to take your burdens and to carry your sorrows. So let's go ahead and stand up. Can I get some prayer team to come forward, some life group leaders? See, I share all this in this message of loving your enemies because the power to love your enemies is in the gospel. It really is. I don't need to like tell you what to do per se because we love because he first loved us. First John 4. We love because he first loved us. And we cannot love our enemies, uh, let alone our own family and friends that well, unless we first experience that love for ourselves. 1 John 4.11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. There was a love that was displayed on Calvary's cross that that story is enough to get us through the rest of our lives. Seeing the cross, seeing Calvary's cross gives us the power. We can understand the text. We can understand what it looks like. We can know what to do. All that is not, all that is meaningless if we don't have the power to do it. And so I emphasize this point, that if an enemy pops up in your life one day, that we remember this, that we remember, that person hates me, but you know what, I hated God. 
and he loved me. I was an enemy, I was hostile in attitude. I was, a, I was by nature a child of wrath. <laughs> but he showed me mercy. That is beautiful. And so if you need prayer, I, I have this prayer team up here just for anyone who needs prayer. And some of you may need um, salvation. Some of you may need just strength to love their enemies, You're going through a hard time, whatever it is. But I welcome you in just a minute to come up and receive prayer. There, there, there really doesn't need to be a how-to when it comes to loving your enemies. Just receive the love of God. Receive the love of God. And so I wanna conclude by saying this. Though your sins were like scarlet, he came to wash you white as snow. Though you were guilty, he came to pay your debts. Though we were enemies of God, he came to make us his friends. And though we were far off, he came to draw us close. And though we deserved hell, he showed us mercy. He came to remove our sins. He came to bind our wounds, to carry our sorrows, to set us free. We can finally be free to love our enemies. And again, it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with God is now put inside of us, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We can now love. We can pray for our persecutors because we've experienced it first. And so if you need prayer, Come on up if you need to give your life to Jesus. If you said, if you said, maybe I thought I couldn't believe or maybe I wouldn't believe, but I need to, and now's the time, then come on up and pray with one of these guys. They'll, they'll help walk you through it. I just think that many of us have been journeying with the Lord for a while and we can get so caught up with a lot of things and I'm all for that. Just There's a lot of things in here to talk about. <laughs> there's a lot. Um, but every now and then, we need, to, we need to go back to that cross and say, thank you, Jesus. This is, this is where the living water comes. This is where our fuel to live this life comes, at the cross. So I want to pray, and then after I'm done, just make your way on up if you'd like prayer. Father, we thank you that you made steps to love us, though we were your enemies. Jesus, you made a way when there was no way. We had so much dirt. We were so unclean, yet you loved us. We were your enemies, yet you came for us. You died on the cross for our sins that we might know you and have eternal life and not just know you in a moment and not just experience a, a, a moment of peace, but for eternity, God, we can be with you. For eternity, you've said, I want you in my home, in my family. No longer are you an orphan. No longer are you an enemy. You are my son. You are my daughter. Now receive my love. Jesus, this morning we receive your love. We receive your love that was displayed on the cross. We thank you that you initiated it, God. We would never be able to make it to you unless you have made a way. So we bless you, Lord. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would speak. And for everyone who's feeling that goading, that prodding in their hearts, that they would, they would respond in faith, Lord. Help us to love our enemies and help us first to look up to you and say, Lord, let me receive your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.